We are in our continuing series, The Gospel in the Life of the Church. It's a series through the pastoral epistles, the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And we've come today to the passage, this portion in 1st Timothy that forms the thesis statement of why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in the first place. His reason for writing to Timothy is found there. Now, Timothy is Paul's spiritual son, calls him his son in the faith. But he's also the apostolic delegate that Paul had commissioned, had appointed to remain there at Ephesus to bring order to the church, to bring instruction and teaching to help that church mature and grow up. He's also there to help deal with some of the false teaching that that had sprung up at Ephesus. So he's there to bring rebuke and correction as well. These pastoral epistles keep before us something so profound, and it's this reality That the church, though it's filled with humans, though it's filled with people just like us, we come to the understanding that the church is not a human enterprise at all. It is divine. It is something supernatural, for its founder is not a man. Its founder is Jesus Christ. He is the builder of his church, and he is the head of his church. We're also reminded through these pastoral epistles, especially what we've covered thus far, is that right ecclesiology matters. Ecclesiology is the study of or the theology of the church. And it's so important to have a right theology of the church. That is, before we try to structure the church or organize the meetings of our church or customize our services in order to have mass appeal, we had first better understand what the church is. What is its purpose Before we get to the things that we do. So our passage today is going to give us some very important teaching as it relates to the church of Jesus Christ. It's an all important topic. And my prayer as we study this, as we walk through this portion today, is that we would view the church rightly. We would come to a right understanding of what the church of Jesus Christ is. We would see its importance. We would see its beauty. And we would allow God's word to shape the life and conduct of our local church. So as you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 14 through 16. Hear the words of the living God. This is Paul writing. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are the words of the Lord. We're going to look at this in two sections. Primarily, the church's character uh, is the first thing that we're going to look at. And then we're going to look at the church's confession. Paul writes here that he hopes to come soon to Ephesus. Now, he's optimistic. He plans to see him soon. In fact, he says that to Timothy twice in this letter. I hope to come to you soon. I'm, I'm going to be coming soon. That was his expectation and hope. And and when he comes, he's not only going to be able to reinforce the things that he instructed Timothy to teach the church, all the things that he's written to him, he's coming as an apostle of the Lord. He's coming with the authority of Jesus Christ. So now he's going to be able to deal with things in a very decisive way. He has the authority delegated to him by our Lord Jesus Christ to set the church in order, to rebuke the false teachers, to put them out of the church, right? All of those things, he's going to be able to deal with that. So here he's he's optimistic. He hopes to come to the church personally. But I love here that thankfully, he is taking into account that he might be delayed. That he isn't in control of all the circumstances in his life, just like we aren't, even though he's an apostle of the Lord. And he decides to put some things in writing to Timothy. 
instructions for the church. And no doubt that was also by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He put these things in writings so that, that if he's delayed, right, we would have all of these things that would help to serve and edify the church of Jesus Christ. They are the inscripturated apostolic teaching, which here we are 2,000 plus years later, walking through today. These very same instructions given to the church at Ephesus, and they are relevant and pertinent to us. And through this act of divine providence, we don't have to guess what's expected of us. We don't have to try to imagine what it means for us to try to conduct ourselves in God's household as we just read We have a book. We have the apostolic teaching come to us. Now, as we saw there in our passage, the theme of this letter is the right conduct of the church. The church ought to know how to behave in God's household. The first half of 1 Timothy, the second half of this letter is filled with information concerning how believers ought to behave in the church. And that's kind of funny that we have to be told how to behave. But just like we instruct our children how to behave in our homes, right? How we instruct our children to behave when they go, when we go visit someone else's home. I saw yesterday a lot of children who don't know how to behave (laughs) in our, in our event out here. Like that in the church, because it's God's house, we need to learn how to behave and conduct ourselves in his house. Paul is passionate about the church of Jesus Christ. He has spent himself for the church. He carries in his body the scars of his passion for the church. How he was persecuted for the cause of Christ. And all that he suffered and endured in trying to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and see churches established throughout the known world. You can feel his love and passion as you read some of his letters and what he wrote to the different churches. Uh, For instance, the letter he wrote to the church in Galatia, he writes in Galatians 4.19, My little children, think of that term of endearment and how he views them, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He so desired the, the spiritual growth of these believers. He so desired to see them grow up in Christ and mature in Christ. He cared for them so much. He considers himself like a, like a mother in the anguish and pains of childbirth. Some of you ladies have experienced that. No man here has experienced that regardless of what our world tells you today. He considers himself like a mom enduring that pain, what, with the hopes of seeing that life on the other side. That baby she has carried for nine months and the joy that will come for that. Paul Paul was fiercely protective of the church. He's constantly pointing them to Jesus Christ. He's constantly warning them against what is false and false teachers and how they must be dealt with. Why? Because the truth was at stake. The gospel was at stake. The health and life of the church was at stake. Writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, he writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent has deceived Eve by his cunning, your Thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is why he is so protective of the church. This is why he's so passionate for the church, because it's Jesus' church. He's not trying to amass disciples for himself. He's not trying to gain a following. He's not trying to build his own platform. He says, I betrothed you to Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You're his bride. Because it's Christ's church, because the church is his bride, we are not free to do whatever we want to with the church. We are not free to design the church as we want to. We are not free to organize it any way we want to, to invent our own interpretation of what the church is and what the church is to do. The church is Jesus Christ's. And that's why he writes in this letter to Timothy 
that we must know how one ought to behave. Chapter 2 and 3, we've already looked at, is a call to exemplary conduct in the church. He starts in chapter 2 with a call uh, to, to the primacy of prayer. The first thing we must do is, is to pray. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. There's an evangelistic and missional emphasis to that. There's a call to uncontentious prayer. Men are to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and quarreling. There's instruction for the ladies in regards to modest dress and how they are to adorn the gospel. There's the aspect of the role of men and women in the church and the order that must be there. There's the instructions on how we're to appoint godly elders and deacons to lead the church of Jesus Christ. Why does he give us all that? Why does he write these these aspects of conduct? Well, he does that because Paul is presenting to us the reality that the church is something unique. The church is something special. There is nothing else like the church on the face of the earth. This is no ordinary institution. And he presents a compelling case here with three characteristics he uses to describe who and what the church is. And here's the thing. If you misunderstand this. If you get this wrong. You end up with what we hear many Christians say. I am the church. You've heard a lot of people say that. Well I don't have to gather. I don't, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be with other people. Because I by myself am the church. Have you heard that? Have you said that? Don't answer that. If you get this wrong, you have the phenomenon we have of of online church. Where I can watch the live stream of a service in my PJs with my mug of tea or coffee. And I don't have to gather with people. It's the same thing as if I was there in person. Now, there are some valid reasons to have live stream. There's some valid reasons to be home watching if you're sick, disabled, infirm. I think it's a great tool. right? But if you're not sick, infirm, or disabled... Guess where you should be? Gathering with the people of God. Misunderstanding of what Paul begins to describe here is why many churches feel that on Sunday what they need to do is put on a performance. That as some state, we could do anything short of sinning. Why? Because we want to reach the unchurched. It's the wrong motivation. It's the wrong purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's why many resort to a host of unbiblical practices under the guise of being a church. But if we get these truths, if we understand what Paul is telling us here about the church, it will forever change how we view the church. It will cause us to love the church more deeply, even with her flaws, even with her faults, and even with some of the people that are part of it. Don't look around. But I know a name flashed in your mind, right? Understanding these truths will fuel your commitment to Christ, who is the head of his church. Now, before we dive and look at these three particular categories here and characterizations of the church, I want you to think about this. Ask yourself, how do I view the church? When I think of the church, what is it that comes to mind? What do I see it as? Do I understand its purpose? Do I understand why it is that we gather? Right? What is my understanding of the church? Right ecclesiology matters. Now, Paul's three descriptions of the church are soaring theological proclamations of the beauty and glory of the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 15 there, Paul states that the church is the household of God. He also states that it's the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I'm going to restate these uh, in three categories for us to look like, look at here. The first is that the church is the visible manifestation of the family of God. The second is that the church is a dwelling place of the presence of God. And thirdly, that the church is the guardian and herald 
of the word of God or the truth of God. So let's begin to look at these. First, the church is the visible manifestation of the family of God. That's why he writes, I'm writing these things so that if I'm delayed, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, there are multiple metaphors for the church utilized in Scripture. The New Testament writers use a variety of them. Paul specifically uses the body as a metaphor. We are part of the body of Christ. Again, we just read earlier, he refers to us as the bride of Christ. He also writes that we are the holy temple of God, a spiritual house, Peter writes, being built up like living stones in this spiritual house. He also refers to, uh, Paul also refers to the church as a field and a building. Elsewhere, he employs uh, the, the same metaphor here as a house or a household and a family in several of his letters to describe the church. And that's what he means here. When he's talking about the household of God, he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ being part of the family of God. That the church is the family of God. We are not only his house, we are also his household. Now that word household there, we've already seen this word used twice in this chapter. In the qualifications for elders and deacons. Household is the Greek word oikos. You probably have heard that term used before. Right? And it means, when referring to it as the house, we are referring to everyone who belongs to the house. All of the family members who are related, including even the servants who are part of this family unit, are part of a household, the oikos, the family members who reside in a house. So it can mean both the structure as well as the people who live there. And Scripture calls us both the house and household of God. So when Paul gives instructions to those who would desire to be elders, he says, first of all, they need to learn how to manage their own household well. Because if they can't manage that, they have no business trying to manage the household of God. The same instruction he gives to deacon. They need to know how to manage their own household well. Those who would presume to lead in God's oikos must have proven themselves by leading well in their own oikos. All right? That's what he's trying to convey here. This is why he's repeating the same term. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This, this idea of the church as a family. The idea is as, as you look out here in this, that is a part, just a small part of the visible manifestation of the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right here, the family of God. Who's part of that family? Everyone who's professed, right, to to uh, who's professed Christ are members of the family of God, the visible family of God, with God as the father and the head of the household, and Jesus as our elder brother, all of us sons and daughters of God, and all of us brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, with elders and deacons serving the father and to see all of his purposes fulfilled in his family. It's a beautiful picture. This is why the church isn't a business. The church isn't a corporation. And there's nothing else on this earth that resembles it. The closest thing is a family, isn't it? Your own family unit. When we look at the church, this larger picture here, it's all of the members of the family of God. It's a beautiful picture. So how do we become part of this family? Well, you become part of this family like you become part of your own family. You need to be born into it. You didn't choose it, did you? You were born into it. You have to be born into it. This is what happens in the new birth. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. It is the way we're born into the kingdom of heaven. And it is the magnificent doctrine of adoption. Where God takes a hell-bent sinner and makes them a son. God takes a rebel and makes them this righteous family member. I mean, this is grace. It's glorious. He adopts us as his own and places us into his own family. This is what God does. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession in chapter 12, paragraph 1, states the doctrine of adoption this way. God has granted that all those who are justified... 
would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet, they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's adoption. We've been placed into his family. We didn't deserve it. He graciously grants that to us. And this is what Paul, when he writes, this is God's household. This is what all of those whom, whom God has adopted by grace for his son are now part of his family. And get to enjoy all of the privileges and rights of what it means to be part of the family of God. Now Paul weaves all of these different metaphors or several of these metaphors together to express the unity that we now have because we're in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at this, in 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God for his spirit. He just throws all the terms in there, all of the metaphors to describe what's happened here. You are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Before you were strangers and aliens, but no more. You're members of the household of God. He's the chief cornerstone, right? But we're being built up into this whole structure. We're the holy temple of God, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Now think about those And think about what we just talked about and what profound implications that has for us. Because we are God's family, these relationships we have as members of God's family are eternal. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are brothers and sisters, not just for the duration of our life, but all the way on into eternity on the other side of this. We will be forever brothers and sisters. So I ask you, how are you getting along with your eternal siblings? Oh, we know what it is to have a brother and a sister, right? And the fights we get into in the home, and how annoyed we get with one another, and how they bother us sometimes. I was a saint. It was mainly my older <laughs> sister that was the source of, of trouble in the home. <laughs> She's not here, so I can say that. I'm sure I was no saint either. None of us are, right? But here, the reality of this is that we're part of God's family. And all siblings are going to fight, but we're family. So what are we to do? What is the implication that this, if we're part of God's household, it means that we will forgive one another, that we'll serve one another, that we'll fight for one another, that we'll stand alongside one another, That will submit to our heavenly father. Because we're part of his household. It also means that you can't do church on your own. If you think that, you're wrong. You can't do it on your own. You can't do church at home by yourself. To attempt that, which is something so foreign to these apostolic writers, means that you are separated from the family of God. That is a horrific thought. Knowing what we know, what it means to be part of the family of God. And listen, I know, I've already talked about it in this series. I know of the pain that many experience in the church. I know of the, of the spiritual abuse some have walked through in the church. There have been, been, been jerks as leaders and pastors who have abused the sheep of God. And I promise you, if they don't repent, they are going to have to stand before the chief shepherd and give account. 
So there's no excusing away that behavior. But neither does it excuse us from participating in the life and fellowship of the family of God. It's what we were made for. It's what we were saved into. Belonging to the church is not optional. When we come together, it's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. It is a grace. It is a special privilege. It is an honor bestowed on us. And each and every Sunday is a family reunion. Each and every Sunday, we get to come together and receive encouragement and instruction from our Father through His Word. You and I get to reunite around the family table to eat of the bread of life and drink of the cup of forgiveness. It is no light thing. It is something of great consequence. It is something so significant and profound. And and how little we think of this ordinary means of grace to us in gathering. When it is something so supernatural and extraordinary. It is how God grows us up. It is how he equips us. It's how we are built up into this spiritual house. The household of God. Let's look at the second Phrase The second category here about the church being the dwelling place of the presence of God. He calls the church, the church of the living God. That phrase, the living God, is a, a profoundly important phrase. Your Old Testament writers frequently use this terminology to describe God. He is the living God. Why is he the living God? Because he is and no other God is, right? All the other gods are dead and lifeless and false idols. He is alive. He is the living God. It's how he revealed himself to his people. How his people recognized him here. He's dead. They are dead. Those idols are dead. Those false gods have no mouths to speak. No eyes to see. And then we have Yahweh, the living God. Now the New Testament writers also use this designation for God. And they use it frequently to emphasize his eternality, his immortality, um, and, 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 and this, this idea of us turning to Christ, to the living God, to the living Christ, necessarily involves us turning away from dead idols, right? Our, our dead way of life, our, our dead religion, all of these things. But if it's the church of the living God, and we're talking about a God who's alive, where is it that God dwells? Where does this living God dwell? Well, we see in the Old Testament, he dwells in the temple. His temple, right? That's where God would dwell. The temple is where God's presence is. The temple is where God's people would come to meet with him and to worship him and to offer sacrifices to him. The temple is God's house. That's what it's referred to in the Old Testament. The house of God. Well, where is his house today? Where is his temple today? What does the scripture reveal to us? We are his temple, right? We are his temple. We are. It's us. We are God's house. We are his temple. We are his dwelling place. He dwells among his people. First temple was the garden, there was the tabernacle, there was Solomon's temple, there was the reconstructed, rebuilt temple, there was Herod's temple, and now we are the temple of the living God. Look how Paul expresses this in his letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18. A passage that we're familiar with, and many times it's talked about, you know, uh, used in the context of, you know, a believer you know, dating an unbeliever, and of course it's applicable there, but that's not what this passage is about. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, look, The temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. 
And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul is is reinterpreting this Old Testament prophecy to demonstrate the reality now of how God's people are the temple of God. He inhabits his people. He dwells with his people. It's no longer a place that you go to. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem or when when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. No, what is he saying? The church, his people are the temple of the living God. This is plural. This is collective here. He's not saying you as an individual are the whole temple of God. Even though he does indwell each believer by his spirit. We are the temple of the living God. And because God is holy. And because the living God dwells with his people. It has implications for how we live our life. That's why there's a call to holiness. That's why there's a call to right conduct. What fellowship can a believer have with unrighteousness and wickedness and darkness? Because God dwells in them. Because they are the temple of the living God. John Stott in his commentary. First Timothy in this passage writes. Israel's consciousness that the living God lived among them. Profoundly affected their community life. Even an elementary lesson in personal hygiene was based on the fact that the Lord God walked among them and must not see anything indecent. And they were incensed when the heathen presumed to defy, insult, or ridicule the living God. An even more vivid consciousness of the presence of the living God should characterize the Christian church today. For we are the temple of the living God, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. When you think about the Old Testament saints, all of the laws, right? You read Leviticus, right? And and you need to do this to be clean, and this to be clean, and this to be clean, right? None of them should be unclean. And sometimes you read that over and over again, and you're like, what is this all about? Well, what it's about is that God was in their midst, in his temple. The holy God. How they would approach this God in their uncleanness. How they to demonstrate to the surrounding nations their unique status as the people of God, if not by the way they externally lived. How they lived in community. How they had to cleanse themselves externally from unrighteousness. So that they could approach God in some measure and to some degree. And now we live with the reality that we are the temple of God. That his presence is with his people. How could we come to something like this in such a casual and flippant manner? Not realizing that his presence is with us. Not being aware of it even at times. He's with us. God is here. Do you get that? He is here with his people. The living God is present with us right now. Right in this moment. We are the church of the living God. The word church is the word ecclesia. It means assembly. It's in the word. Right? When I keep saying you cannot do church by yourself... It's in the very word. You cannot assemble yourself by yourself, should I say. You can't do it. We assemble like this. We, we gather with God's people in a weekly rhythm on the Lord's day. And this is where the church of the living God, we, that's who we are. And he is with us. We encourage you to read your Bible by yourself. It's a good thing. We want you to do that. It's good to be home and lock yourself in your room and throw on some worship music and worship God. I have some deeply wonderful times worshiping the Lord by myself. But it's nothing like when I gather with God's people to worship. And I'm reading the Bible by myself, but when I'm hearing the word of God read with the people of God, it is something that is a whole other level that I can't even comprehend. 
but it's because what we're doing now together is enriched by the knowledge and awareness of God's presence in our midst. When we sing in worship today, we are doing that before the presence of the living God. In this moment when we are hearing his voice through the exposition of the word, it is before the presence of the living God. In a few moments when we meet him at the table, we are partaking of the Lord's Supper in the presence of the living God. As we fellowship with one another and encourage one another and even pray for one another here in the gathering of the saints, we are doing that before the presence of the living God. And because the church is the assembly of the living God, the temple of the living God, the way we conduct ourselves when we are together and what we do is of vital importance. Third, the church is the guardian and herald of the word of God. Paul describes here the church not only as the household of God and the church of the living God, he calls the church pillar and buttress of the truth. And those terms are building terms, right? This this is an uh, architectural metaphor that he is employing here. We should know, right, that the foundation of a building, the part of the building that cannot be seen when we appreciate a building for the structure that we see, we would say that the foundation is the most important elemental structure of what we're looking at. Without a good foundation, a solid foundation, that structure cannot be supported, And that's what a buttress is. When we talk about a buttress, the word means foundation or support. And and the sense of that word is that it's a structural member used to support and strengthen a framework. So Paul is saying here that the church provides a solid foundation of the truth. That is that the church holds firm the truth so that, that the structure of the church does not collapse under the weight of potential false teaching. The church is to preserve the truth. The church is to protect the truth and guard the truth as its foundation. But not only is it its foundation, it's also the pillar. The pillar of the truth. Now, what does a pillar do? Pillar or column. Some translations render a column. What is it that a pillar does? A pillar would support the roof. The roof rests upon these particular supporting columns. Tall pillars can hold up a very high roof with the intention of it being able to be seen from a great distance. So in this case, when Paul refers to the church as a pillar of the truth, it's that the church holds the truth up and he holds it up high and proclaims it so that it can be seen and heard and not hidden from the world. Now, we might employ different metaphors thinking about this, but this imagery is not lost on these believers at Ephesus. For in their very city, they had a great example of a particular structure that no doubt Paul had in mind. And that was what is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis, or Diana, by its Roman name. She was the goddess, the patron goddess of Ephesus. And this temple, right, had over 120, now it had been destroyed and rebuilt a number of times, but at the time of this writing, that temple had 120 plus huge 60 foot high columns, tall, with a huge marble roof that when the sun hit it, it shone with great brilliance. As you can imagine, that would have been able to be seen from many, many miles away, from a great distance, right? And just like that temple called attention to the goddess her worshipers served, the church as the temple of God, the pillar of the truth of the living God, must stand taller than any temple to a dead idol. Must display the truth far and wide. The church is to be that city on a hill. The church is to be a light in the world. This is not something... We keep in here and the truth in here. No, we herald it. We proclaim it. That is what we are called to do. And in order to be that, the church must be the guardian of the truth. Like a foundation must hold firm, remain unseen, not promoting herself. Right? 
A lot of churches like to promote themselves. They don't promote Christ, but they sure do like to promote themselves. No, no, no. We're not to advertise ourselves. We're to be heralding the truth. We're to be heralding Christ. The church is to be firmly rooted in order to be able to do that, firmly rooted and grounded in the truth so that we're not carried away by every false doctrine and teaching. And our proclamation will only be as strong as our preservation of the truth. We're people of the truth, are we not? We don't live by lies. We don't fall lockstep with the world and the lies of the world. We're the pillar and buttress of the truth. The foundation and pillar or column of the truth. The church cannot be the church apart from the truth. The church depends on the truth. The life and health of the church depends on the truth. And without the truth, we cannot call ourselves a true church. No church can. But what is that truth? What is the truth that he's saying here we are a pillar and buttress of? What is it about the church being the household of God, the church of the living God, that that must preserve this truth and herald this truth? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, and that's the church's confession. What does he say here? He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And the truth that you and I must guard as the church of Jesus Christ, the truth you and I must herald and proclaim concerns Christ Jesus. And he expresses this truth in what many scholars believe to be an ancient creedal hymn of the church. And it's the six lines that we see following that statement, which begins, great indeed, we confess. Now, in some of your translations, great indeed may be uh, translated uh, beyond all question or most certainly. And the implication of that phrase is that there is nothing greater than this. What he begins to talk about, he's saying, there is nothing greater than this. Without question, this is the greatest thing indeed. What is that? And he goes, well, this is what we confess. Now, the believers at Ephesus knew the creedal confession of the worshipers of Artemis. It is something they would have heard every day. It is no doubt something that many of them probably recited and chanted frequently before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's a daily chant. There's no one greater than Artemis to Ephesus. It was their patron goddess. It was whom they worshipped. It is whom they paid temple taxes to. Right? They prayed to Artemis right, to bless them in their endeavors. All the trade guilds, right, were that, that was the patron saint of all of the trade guilds in Ephesus. Right? Artemis was a big deal. And that's what they would chant. That's what they confessed. This is what they would recite. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Acts chapter 19 records this incredible account of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. The gospel is advancing mightily. Many signs and wonders are being done um, through Paul. Uh, and the, the, church, the, the church there is growing. Many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There's the account there where many take their books on magic and sorcery and all of that stuff. And they're little Harry Potter books. And they throw them in the fire. <laughs> Ooh, I could tell some of you hate it. Some of you love it. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. But they're burning that why. They feel this conviction that they need to leave this old way of life behind. But then you have some that start going, wait a minute. This is causing us trouble. They begin to stir up other people and incite them because you, you have the silversmiths who sold their little uh, silver trinkets in worship of Artemis, their little WWAD bracelets, you know. And, and this is how they made their living and their money. And now they're worried that with all these people responding to Paul and following Jesus Christ, that they're not going to have a business anymore. In fact, they say what they're really worried about is that people aren't even going to worship Artemis anymore. Our great goddess, no one's going to worship her. Everyone's going to turn from her in the whole world. Now think about the impact of the gospel in Ephesus during this time where they thought 
This is spreading like wildfire everywhere. Man, it's our prayer that that would happen in our area, right? In Sanford and Lake Mary and Longwood and Seminole County and beyond, right? That people go, wow, the gospel is everywhere we turn. People are coming to faith in Christ. But they're scared. So what do they do? They incite a riot. They start stirring up the people and say, man, they're going to get rid of, they're going to dethrone Artemis. Our goddess and people just are in an uproar. They're shouting, they're screaming, they're protesting, they're marching, they're rioting. And what are they shouting? It says for over two hours, this is what they shout. That creed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Incidentally, isn't that what people who don't have the truth do today? They riot and scream and shout. Right? When you don't have the truth on your side, your side you shout. I think of my brother John Barros at the abortion clinic in Orlando, and he's out there every day preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance and calling uh, men and women to rescue their babies. And it's like a circus freak show out there with, with them screaming and shouting at him and making all sorts of noise. And the reason they do that is because they don't have the truth. They're upholding a lie. And when they hear the truth, they recoil you know, in, 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 into this state, in this frenzied state of shouting and screaming. This is what's happening right here at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So over two hours they're shouting this. Now think about our confession. Think about what, what Paul is writing here. Now great indeed. Like if they're saying Artemis is great. Who's greater? Who is great beyond all question? Well, he refers to now the mystery of godliness, right? Mystery of godliness. What does he mean that that is our confession? Now, when, when he uses that word mystery, he doesn't mean something you and I have to solve. The mystery's already been solved, right? Mystery means uh, something that was previously hidden and it's now revealed. Now it's disclosed, right? We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ now, okay? But he uses that word mystery because it was. It was hidden to a degree from everyone's eyes, but now it's been fully revealed, okay? And he's saying here is that what makes godliness possible, what makes the right conduct of the church possible is Jesus Christ. He's the mystery. He is our confession. The key to godly conduct in God's household is this confession of Christ Jesus. Confession that Jesus is Lord. The confession that Jesus is great beyond all question. That Jesus is the one true and living God and there is no one else. So the church has to hold on to this mystery. The church has to herald this mystery. The elders are to teach and preach this mystery. That is our confession. We are a confessing people. There's no Christianity without confession. Right? We confess. And our identity and conduct flow out from our confession. Well, we have people say, well, creeds and confessions, those things are extra biblical. Uh, We shouldn't use those things. There's no creed but the Bible, even though that's a creed in and of itself. The word creed means to believe. When we say, I believe, we are formulating a creedal statement. For me even to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, is a creed in and of itself. And there is nothing wrong with that in so much as it agrees with scriptural teaching. As long as it's faithful to what God's word teaches concerning a matter. I read earlier from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which we affirm. We confess creeds like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. All these creeds and confessions are... The orthodox ones, right, are summaries of biblical truth and teaching. But these are subordinate, of course, and only authoritative when it comes to them being faithfully summations of Scripture's clear teaching on matters of faith and conduct. So Paul feels free now under the inspiration of the Spirit to recite an ancient hymn, an ancient creed of the early church. It's a Christ-saturated hymn. Six lines. And I love how the ESV breaks it up for us here so we, we see that there's something poetic about this. This is just not a normal sentence or phrase here. But this six lines, and different commentators have different ways to 
break this up or to try to categorize this, but most believe this to be about six lines here that are actually three couplets. So there's three, uh, three sections here, each with two complementary lines. And if you look at the, the grammatical structure of each line, it begins with a verb. And it's a verb in the passive voice. And you're like, why is that important? I didn't come here to learn grammar. <laughs> right? But the passive voice tells us that the subject uh, of the sentence here is the recipient of the verbal action. And the subject of each one of these lines is Jesus Christ. That's why it begins with, he was manifested in the flesh. And by implication, he follows along with each of those lines. He is the subject. Jesus is the subject of each one of these phrases, right? But it begins with a verb. And the couplets, when you look at them, and as you read them here, like, I don't really get what makes sense. But, but I'm going to walk through this briefly here so you can see this. These couplets show us the entire spectrum between the celestial realm and the terrestrial realm. The entire spectrum between heaven and earth. Between flesh and the spirit. On the one side you have what? He was manifested in the flesh. Then you have him vindicated by the spirit. Flesh and spirit. Right? You have him seen by angels. But then, which is heavenly or celestial. But then proclaimed among the nations. The earth. Believed on where? In the world, right? The terrestrial realm and then taken up to glory, right? This is what this hymn, this uh, poem here is showing us. Uh, now, Kent Hughes and John Stott in their commentaries categorize the couplets this way. I like it. I think it's right. I think it fits, so I'm going to use it, okay? The first couplet is the revelation of Christ, Jesus was revealed to earth by heaven. The second couplet is the witness of Christ. That is, all of creation, heaven and earth, are witnesses to Jesus. And the third couplet, the reception of Christ, heaven and earth, receive the triumphant Lord of glory. So let's look at this quickly. The revelation of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. All right, what does that mean? Well, Manifested in the flesh is a pretty clear reference to his incarnation. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. His virgin birth, the God of glory, became a man. He took on real humanity. He had a real physical body. Now, I know that is something we confess, but this is one of those heresies of the early church. Uh, it was pretty profound. Many believed he didn't have a real physical body. Okay? You had all of these things that started to emerge a little bit later on into the latter part of the first century where uh, a, a big heresy was that Jesus was really more like a, an apparition. Right? It was just like a visible ghost, in essence. He didn't have a real body. And that's why we have the writers say here, whoever does not confess that he came in the flesh, man, they don't know God. They're still dead in their sins. It's a big deal, Right? He was manifested in the flesh. The eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us, as it says in John 1. The second half, vindicated by the Spirit, is the bookend of Jesus' life. You have his incarnation all the way now to his resurrection. Well, how was Jesus vindicated by the Spirit? Well, to be vindicated means to be justified or verified or deemed to be correct or right. He was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection. For when he was raised from the dead by the spirit of the living God and the power of God, what did that mean? It meant that Jesus' claims about himself were true. His lordship is true. He's vindicated by the spirit in, the raising, in being raised from the dead. So in this ancient hymn, what are they singing here? They're singing of the incarnation and resurrection of Christ. And you and I must confess those same glorious truths. The second couplet, the witness of Christ seen by angels proclaimed among the nations. Now this couplet contrasts how Christ was seen or witnessed from both the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The first is the supernatural realm, the heavenly realm, seen by angels. Have you studied or even stopped to think about how much 
the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth and life and then his resurrection and ascension, all of the ministry of the angels, all the supernatural activity that has surrounded that, all of the angelic references there, we don't think about that. We're a little too sophisticated to think about angels and demons and all that stuff. But we, we see it right there. Who is it the one who told, foretold to Mary and Joseph about the coming of Christ? It was what? It's an angel who appeared to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth. Angels, right? There was a whole heavenly host singing, right? Angels were present at his birth. Angels were present ministering to Jesus while he was tempted in the wilderness. An angel ministered to Jesus at Gethsemane in his moment of agony. Who was a witness to the resurrection and the empty tomb, if not angels. Who comforted the disciples during the ascension of Jesus Christ. Angels. He was seen by angels. Who witnessed Christ before his incarnation in the heavenly realm, if not the angelic host. Who is it now that stands before the throne of God in unceasing worship of the Lamb who sits on the throne? And worships him as it states to us in Revelation here. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It is this myriad of angelic hosts. And it's the angelic hosts who will return with Christ at the close of the age. It's seen by angels. They saw it all. They witnessed it all. Back scripture tells us that they scratched their head marveling in the salvation of sinners. Like, God, you're crazy. What are you doing here with these people? But it's something glorious and they marvel at that. They want to peer into what is this thing. But they're witnesses, heaven witnesses, and attest to Christ. And these angels who were the closest to Christ, and now we have the Gentile nations who were the furthest from him. And, and Christ's witnesses take the good news to the nations, to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. This is what's taken place, isn't it? In the book of Acts after Pentecost, right, the gospel begins to spread. And it goes to all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Right? It's the, mission, the ongoing mission of the church. Kent Hughes writes that cosmic witnesses to Christ are there on earth and in heaven. So we confess the lordship of Christ to the one whom angels bow down and testify of him to the nations. And the third couplet is the reception of Christ. That he is believed on in the world and taken up in glory. John writes in his gospel that those who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. He is believed on in the world. He's believed on in the world by those who what? Receive him. Who believe in his name and become part of God's family. So the world receives him in that fashion. And heaven also receives him in his ascension, right? He's taken up in glory. He's ascended to heaven. He returns from whence he came. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father reigning in glory. It's the confession of the church. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We confess that he, that he was who he said he was and how he was revealed in his incarnation and resurrection. We confess that he was witnessed by heaven and earth and we confess that he was received on earth and heaven. That is the truth we hold fast and stand firm in. The truth we boldly proclaim. And Jesus, brothers and sisters, is the content and object of our faith and of this truth. He's the sum and substance of the truth. And the confession of this glorious Christ makes possible the godly conduct that Paul is instructing and exhorting the church to walk in as the family of God, the church of living God, God's temple, and the guardians and heralds of his truth. In closing here, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, In Colossians chapter 1, he says, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Because we are the church, we must proclaim this Christ. Our conduct is going to naturally flow from a right confession of Christ and from a right confession of the truth. If we get that wrong, we get the other parts wrong as well. We can and must conduct ourselves in a way that brings Him glory. And we must view the church in light of that truth that we confess. The reality of who we are as the people of God, the family of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. My prayer today is that you would see the church rightly. That you would be fiercely devoted and committed to Christ and His church. And that you boldly proclaim this Lord of glory.